All right, well, good morning, church family. Anybody remember what the message was on last week? Good call. Anybody remember the title? Get Off the Fence. That was the title. Yes, yes. Um, I'm glad someone, thank you, Brent. I'm glad someone remembered. Yes. The title was Get Off the Fence. Now, while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, I want to briefly explain the point of today's message. Because today is the sequel to last week. Once we've gotten off the fence, in other words, once we have chosen whether we want to be in God's will or not, and committed to that side, to that choice, we need to discuss the next logical step, which is getting on the field. Get off the fence and get on the field. And this sermon came out of a decision. Uh, I made this, this decision whether to start another book of the Bible for exposition, because that's what I typically like to do is preach through a book, or to continue just a little bit longer on this, this like textual slash topical thing that I've been doing. And, and it seemed the Lord was leading me to, to pursue this particular lead by just making things fall into place. And I'm going to try to explain that kind of as we go, but I want to start by saying I told Shannon about a week and a half ago that the next sermon after Get Off the Fence would be Get on the Field, but I did not even have a clue as to what text was going to be the basis for that sermon yet. And and after I settled on this one, I had a really cool surprise. I think it was from the Lord. Uh, I'm really excited to share it with you today. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Paul's second letter to Timothy. We're going to go to chapter 2 of 2 Timothy. Okay? That's, uh, that's the main text for today, but we're also going to spend a little bit of time in uh, 1 Corinthians 9 because Paul kind of does a, a little bit of an exposition of himself when we get uh, to that point when he talks about an athlete. So we're going to get there. So if you want to stick your thumb there or whatever or, you know, bookmark it in your phone, whatever you want to do, um, just a few more seconds to get to 2 Timothy 2, and then we're going to read. We're going to start in verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Father God, I ask in Jesus' name this morning that for each of us, we will be open to your word. I pray, Father, that we'll be good soil. As always, Lord, we want your word to take root and bear fruit, and I pray, God, that the fruit that it bears will be good. Lord, we need you every moment. We need you uh, for every little bit of understanding, and so we ask that you will give us wisdom to better grasp the teaching today, and I pray, Father, that um, maybe if there's something that you reveal, even in the midst of the message, I pray that you will... Uh, make it clear and plain so that I'll be able to share it with your people. I thank you for the immense privilege of teaching your word to your people through the power of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to start off with that last verse that we just read there. I normally go in order, but we're going to start at verse 7. Okay, I cannot tell you how many times I have read that verse when reading through 2 Timothy and just thought, well, that's kind of frustrating. You know, I mean, I mean, why, why, like, think about this. Why does Paul have to speak in code? Right? 
I mean, shouldn't it be something that we can easily understand by reading it? And plus, on the surface, it seems pretty clear. So, so what does he mean? Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It seems like he, he's, he's hinting that there is a much deeper truth to these examples than just what's right there on the top. And if, if that's the case, then, then it makes me want to ask him, why be cryptic instead of just making the connection for us? You know, and to be honest, I, I've pretty much taken that passage at face value in the past. It just kept on going, right? But I felt led to preach through it this week, and the deeper I looked into it, the more it made sense to me, and I hope it will to you too. So um, we're going to go back up to verse 3. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And I want you to bear in mind who Paul is talking to here. According to tradition, Timothy was, was his protege, uh, and he continued to lead the church in Ephesus until he was stoned to death in his 80s. He was murdered by a crowd because he continued to preach the gospel. And as not only a believer in Jesus Christ, but also a leader in the church during the time of Nero, I think we can say Timothy was certainly familiar with Christians suffering for their faith. Paul even told Timothy that anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle Peter spoke often about the suffering that was to be expected for what's doing right. Or excuse me, for doing what's right. Jesus himself even told the apostles they should expect to be hated and mistreated. And I know that we've talked about persecution, we've talked about suffering in the name of Christ fairly frequently over the last few years, so, so I feel like that should be one of the things that we are mentally prepared to deal with, right? When we, when we, just, when we expect something, it makes it a lot less of a shock when it actually happens. And not only that, but, but we can know, we can know that we have a reward in heaven whenever we are persecuted for Christ's namesake. He said that himself. Remember, rejoice and leap for joy says, when you're mistreated for my sake. What's interesting to me here, though, is the allusion that Paul makes uh, to sharing and suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So you got to say, well, okay, what does he mean by that? I mean, how, how can we elaborate on that? Well, that is exactly what Paul does in the following sentence. And, and then he seems to take his, his thoughts even further with two more allegories, uh, and they're brief. But this, this is what we're going to spend most of our time on this morning. I want to pick up in verse 4. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now Paul's first of three illustrations is a soldier. And this is where the, the Holy Spirit's inspiration begins to feel pretty obvious in this message. Because remember, I, I was already going to preach a message called Get on the Field before picking the Scripture. All three of these illustrations involve a different kind of field. I didn't realize that until after settling on the title and then later settling on the Scripture. Soldiers wage war on the battlefield. This is an important aspect of the Christian faith. I feel like we, we've overlooked this the last few decades because society has really up until recently been either neutral or generally positive toward Christianity. And, 
And I heard a theory recently. I'm going to share this with you guys. That this is the reason that so many of the more influential Christian leaders have focused on being winsome in the way that we relate to culture. There was a time when this seemed like an appropriate approach. You can remember this. If you you paid attention, if you read anything um, by some of the more famous influential pastors, Bill Hybels and, and Rick Warren and those guys from the 90s, then... They, they really want to reach out and, and, and felt needs and, and being winsome. And, and there's still a lot of that mentality around. But I think there was a time when this seemed right. And now as we, as we further get into this, this downward spiral of, of depravity in the society that we're experiencing today, we're starting to see, you know what? Maybe we need to be a little more aggressive or at least assertive. Part of the problem is that the church has been silent on important issues in order to to have a a go-along-to-get-along attitude with the culture. So we refuse to condemn certain behaviors in the face of pressure. We start compromising. We start accommodating sin, even to the point of espousing false doctrine. And I think a lot of this is fear of being hated, masquerading, as fear of offending people. We'll say that again. I think a lot of this, this reticence that we have to be very, very solid on our faith, the behaviors associated with our faith, is that we have fear of being hated, but it pretends, or we pretend, that it's just fear of offending people. Y'all, the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to people who don't believe it. I want you to think about this. How many people, how many people really want to hear that they are not good enough to get into heaven? Most people don't like that, but it's true. How many people want to believe that there is only one true faith? How many people want to believe the fact that that God sent his son Jesus to come to be our savior by dying on the cross for our sins? You know, that's been deemed cosmic child abuse by the neo-atheists. They're not that neo anymore. (laughs) Most of them are getting pretty up there. But, But guys, this... This is, they want to discredit God's goodness. The historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead after three days has been the subject of multiple attempts to mythologize the resurrection. People don't want to believe it. We cannot pretend that that's okay. We can't pretend that it's all right if people don't believe the gospel and still claim to be Christian. As individuals and as a corporate body, the church will stand up against these satanic attempts to smear the good news of Christ. You know, when Simon Peter made the the great confession of faith, Jesus said, upon this rock, and he uses the word Petra, I believe he's referring to the confession, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail 
against it. What does that say? I think that's a serious statement. And to, to say that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church is an indication that the church is to be somewhat on the offensive. So why are we so afraid of offending? Anyway, this, this illustration of a soldier is really interesting when you consider what it means. You know, Paul says that the soldier is not getting entangled in civilian pursuits. In other words, nothing is more important to him than his current station and mission. And while there has certainly been a dramatic softening in the, the military recently due, due to wokeness, I want us to remember that, that this wasn't always that way, okay? This is just the last few years. You know, for several millennia, when a person signed up to serve in the military, the military they, were, they were essentially signing over all of their rights and privileges, you know, basically. And they were saying they were going into service on behalf of their king or their country. And this was what was expected from an enlisted person. They understood it. This is what they had signed up for. Dave's like, that sounds familiar. We talked about this last week. It's been pointed out by Dave that when a person is, is constricted, uh, I'm having trouble speaking, conscripted, that's the word, conscripted or drafted into the military rather than volunteering, they may not have uh, total or even partial buy-in, right, to the purpose behind it. They may not even see the need for war. Those of you that were around in the 60s and 70s and, and you know, sentient, <laughs> you, you knew that, you saw this. There were people that did not want to be involved in the war. Some of them burned draft cards. Some of them uh, went to war anyway and came back uh, with dishonorable discharges and, and with PTSD. Oddly enough, there was a time when Christianity tried to convert people at the point of a sword. Obviously, that doesn't work. I mean, it might produce people who, who conform out of fear, but their heart's not in it. Islam does the same thing today. Not here yet, but it does it in, in other countries. They tell people essentially, believe this or die. A person who has chosen to be enlisted has buy-in. They usually understand why they're there. They, they grasp that there is a service to be done and often a substantial risk involved. And they also know the military is bigger than the individual. One of the worst advertising campaigns our military has ever tried, I think we talked about this too, is, is the one for the U.S. Army to tell people they are an army of one. That does not make sense. When that first came out, I think a lot of us went, huh? I mean, that's the opposite of the truth, and it's detrimental to the spirit of the army. No man is an army of one. Each soldier, is they must work alongside other soldiers for the betterment of all. And a person who, who signs up to fight for their country, they're not, they're not fighting for some abstract notion. I mean, they're fighting for their father and mother, their brother, their sister, their friends and neighbors. You know, a, a good soldier of Jesus Christ will serve and even suffer because they know it's going to bless other believers. It's going to give them courage. But more importantly, a soldier of Jesus Christ ought to be seeking to please their commander. 
Here's a poignant question. How many of us live to please ourselves? How many professing Christians think, you know, I'm doing okay. I, I avoid the big sins. But they might be addicted to food. You know, eating to live instead of living to eat. Did I say that backwards? Yes, they're living to eat instead of eating to live. Or how many are addicted to entertainment, regularly binging shows on Netflix or whatever? How many of us live lives of prayerlessness and don't spend any time in the Word because we're addicted to hobbies? Or we just don't prioritize properly? A person who, be, who belongs to Christ ought to care more about pleasing Him than pleasing yourself. When a person signs up to be a soldier, they are pledging their loyalty to that entity, that, that cause that they're fighting for. Anyone who has served in the U.S. military has sworn an oath to defend this country from all her enemies, both foreign and domestic. A person who is in the Lord's army must recognize their loyalty is to the Lord and not to the world, nor to the devil, nor to our own flesh. Neither our sinful desires nor our own bodies. We have to be willing to be cannon fodder if that's what God wants. Now, how do we show that loyalty? Because if you're in the Army or the Marines, for those of you Marines here, you know, uh, former Marines, <laughs> there's no such thing. Anyway, I know, I know. So if you, if you are in the military, did you, or when you were in the military, did you just stand there and wave a flag and yell, go get them? Rah, rah, rah. No, you didn't do that? No? Yes. <laughs> they, they might now. I don't know. <laughs> no, of course you didn't. You get on the battlefield with your commander and you do whatever he tells you to do. Likewise, being a good soldier of Jesus Christ means obeying his orders. It's really simple. What did he say? If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Get on the battlefield. Be ready to do whatever your commanding officer asks you to do, including laying down your life for the cause. And make no mistake, guys, this is exactly what the Christian life requires. This isn't just a, a special thing for super Christians. This is what Jesus said. If you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily. It's not a one-time thing. It is a daily thing. We're to die to ourselves, take up our cross, and follow our commander. Get on the battlefield. All right, let's keep going. Verse 5. Paul changes illustrations. Now he moves from a soldier to an athlete. He says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, I want to ask you, when you think of an, ash, an, an, an athlete, I'm really having trouble this morning. Lord, help me to get untongue-tied. When you think of an athlete, what's the first picture in your head? Usain Bolt. Can I share your, uh, your idea of Usain Bolt? Yeah. Judah, Judah was trying to tell us that Usain Bolt was uh, the guy that, uh, that won the 19, what was it, 36 Olympics? 
and beat Germany. And he said, and I'm like, bro, I'm pretty sure that was uh, somebody else, like Jesse somebody. Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens, yeah. And he was like, no, I thought it was Usain Bolt. And I'm like, he's still alive. Like, he's still <laughs> running in the Olympic. Anyway, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was pretty funny. But, um, <laughs> well, okay, so you might think of, of Usain Bolt or, or Jesse Owens. You might think of giants crashing into each other on a gridiron, you know. You, you might think of, of uh, somebody clobbering a home run. Uh, or maybe you think of an Olympic sprinter or a high jumper or a javelin thrower. You know, in most cases, though, if there's going to be an Olympic competition, the athletes are on a playing field. There's that word again. They're on a playing field. When I asked you there what you saw in your head, though, did anyone picture the drill team or the marching band? What about cheerleaders? I mean, they certainly may be athletic, right? But that's not what we think of when we think of an athlete, right? We, those are all people who participate in the fanfare of the game, but they aren't playing the game. What about the people in the stands? Are they athletes? Maybe some of them are, but they're not in the game. They may have a lot of emotional investment in the game, but they aren't playing. No matter how often they might say, hey, we did this or that, you know? Don't you get a kick out of that? Somebody would say, oh, we beat you. Really? You play on the team? Congratulations. You know? Um, it's the people on the field who are exerting themselves, who, who are risking injury, who are using their, their gifts and talents on behalf of the team. They're the ones with skin in the game. Now, a fan may be emotionally invested. They may even be financially invested if they have a bookie, but, but they don't have skin in the game. They're spectators, not participants. There's a guy, author and pastor, Kyle Eilerman. I actually ordered a bunch of copies of this. I, I want to look at this with youth probably next year, and uh, some of you adults may want a copy, but there's, he wrote this great book a while back called Not a Fan, and he discusses the differences between being merely a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus. And uh, I highly recommend this book. We're going to have some in our library in about a week. Um, anyway, I want to talk for a moment about athletes using Paul's analogy. They compete, he says, for a crown. For a crown. Not crayon for you little kids. <laughs> a crown. Okay? That's the prize. Let's take a moment. I want you to just mark that spot. But, but turn, please, to 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, just for a moment. This, this is where the apostle really fleshes out this illustration. If you look at verse 25, he says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. I'm sure this is a generalization. He's speaking in an ideal sense. But what he means is they have to train. They have to exercise. They have to watch their intake, you know, et cetera. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. See, the wreath is the crown that he referred to Back in, in 2 Timothy, traditionally it was, it was a simple laurel wreath. It was just, it was, it was made of, of leaves. <laughs> and so the winner of a, a physical contest would like wear this little crown of, of leaves on their head to show victory. And it's kind of funny, like when you, when you think about the fact that the moment that they cut that off the tree, it began to die. It's already perishing. 
even before they win it. Think about that. Seen that passage where Proverbs talks about money and it says it just sprouts wings and flies away? <laughs> Things of this world don't last. The wreath is perishing before they even win it. But the crown that we receive is very different. The imperishable crown is more valuable than gold, and it's the one that Paul refers to in this letter. Uh, later in the same letter, he says that there is a, a crown of righteousness that is stored up for him, not only for him, but everyone who loves the appearing of Christ. So even so, e even for that crown, which perishes, an athlete desires it because it is a culmination of everything he's worked toward. You know, a good athlete is always striving to be the best he can be, and, and honestly, maybe even the best that anyone can be. You know, Paul alluded to this in the previous verse because he said, I want to say it's verse 24. He said, uh, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Is that 24, if you're looking at it? Okay. Um, so run that you may obtain it. Run that you may obtain the prize. Th this is a sobering reminder, guys, girls, folks, that we need to be trying harder than we are. We need to be trying harder than we are. We, we human beings are especially quick, I think, to comment that, that we are doing our best, even if we really aren't making that much of an effort. Oh, I'm doing my best. You know, well, God desires our true best. He desires our real best. In the book of Philippians, Paul uses the illustration of a runner when he says that he is straining forward toward what lies ahead. And I love this, this, this picture. The Greek word used here, I know I've said this to you a couple, three times, but I'm going to say it again. It's, it's the word that we derive our word agonize from. I mean, it, it means like pushing forward with everything he has, all he's got. Paul continues saying, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's powerful. And then there's encouragement here for us slackers. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Well, hey, guess what? Today may be the day that God reveals it to you. Because we're going through this right now. We need to try harder. Not to be justified. That justification is a free gift. But in the Christian walk, we should be striving for what Christ designed us for. He wants more from us. He wants more from me. He wants more from you. He wants us, as the author of Hebrews said, to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So if we're looking for a prize, let's, let's put our all into it. An athlete also desires the acclaim that one receives for being the best at what they do. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? We actually, some of us, us guys that work out together, we talk occasionally about how we might uh, tend to start comparing ourselves to each other instead of just trying to better from where we were last time and, and how that becomes a trap 
you know? So you got to be careful. But it's good to, to desire to be good at what you're doing. And, and, of course, it depends on your reasoning. But I think a good Christian will have that desire, not in a negative way, but, but in the I want to please the Lord way. We should desire to be pleasing to our Heavenly Father. Romans 2, which, which was written, again, to Christians, to the church in Rome, says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. So is it wrong to work toward being a source of joy for the Lord? Absolutely not. You know, what, what Christian doesn't want to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, upon entering heaven? Oh boy, I, I want to hear that. No, we, we are commanded to do everything that we do as though doing it for the Lord. And I would even say as long as, long as we're not trying to, to win favor in the eyes of people at the expense of God, I think it's okay to want other people to recognize that you're trying your best. I don't think that's wrong. And don't start comparing yourself to them, thinking you're better than them. But it's okay to let people know, I'm really trying to please God. In fact, I think if more of us would say that out loud, it might encourage more of us to do so. If you're going to do that, you've got to commit to competing by the rules. And this isn't just like about the rules during the game. I want to make sure we know this because it's also about the rules during practice. You know, why do athletes practice according to the rules? Why, why should we maintain the discipline to practice according to the rules even if it doesn't seem like everything's on the line? Because, hey, it's just practice, right? Well, we do it in order to play the game right, don't we? You practice according to the rules so that you play the game right according to the rules. And after all, if, if a game is won because of cheating, then a person of conscience can't let that rest. You know, there, there's, there is a principle behind the training. There's a purpose that guides it. We, we practice in similar circumstances uh, to what we might encounter in the actual game. You know, it's like Paul says, once again, 1 Corinthians 9, he says, so, and it's verse 26, I do not run aimlessly. He says, I do not box as one beating the air or shadow boxing. You know, there's a focus. Because after all, whether you're an athlete on the field or, or a Christian walking through life, we learn how to do it right in the big important things, you know, by doing what's right in the smaller, seemingly less important things. And here's, here's how we get in the proper mental space for that, okay? Are y'all are listening? You with me? Okay, here's how we get in this mental space. We will best be able to make the right decision when it matters by recognizing that it always matters. You with me? Good practice leads to good execution in the game. And so even the smallest practice matters. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. But, Paul continues, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Ooh. You know, athletes, even, even if they don't always want to follow the rules, they understand they have to do so in order to not be disqualified. 
Because people remember the champions, right? But they also remember the cheaters, too. What do you think of when you think of Lance Armstrong or, or Tanya Harding or the, the New England Patriots? That was next on my list. I'm not kidding. For all the wrong reasons, guys, cheaters have their honor stripped away. Even if they retain the title, they lose the honor. You have to play the game the right way if you want to retain the glory. And a professing Christian must live in obedience to Christ or they're either going to prove their profession false or they're going to dishonor his name. It'll always be the latter. If not the former as well. I want you to consider the fate of all those, those sketchy televangelists from the 80s. You remember Robert Tilton? Jimmy Swaggart? Jim Baker, or, or, or more recently, the, the horribly tainted legacy of Ravi Zacharias. That still is heartbreaking to me. Friends, be on the playing field, but compete according to the rules. So uh, Paul wraps up his trilogy of illustrations in verse 6 with these words. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, how is that relevant to whatever else we've been talking about here? Consider that, first of all, farmers also spend their daylight hours on fields, like literal fields, right? You know, the soldiers have their battlefields, athletes are playing fields, farmers are in the harvest field. Farmers are in the harvest field. One of, one of the long-standing and incredibly dumb traditions in our family is to be driving down the highway and all of a sudden someone spots hay bales and they point and yell, hey! And if you look, you lose, right? So there are even people in this room who are not part of my biological family who know better than to look when I say, hey, now, CJ. <laughs> He's over there nodding. Yes. Uh, but honestly, it's one of my favorite things to see. You know, I love it. Every time I see one, I'm riding with Craig. He goes, look, it's a shredded wheat farm. Um, this, <laughs> there's this newly harvested field with fresh bales of hay just dotting the landscape. I think that's beautiful. The other day we were riding to Texarkana and we passed a, a field. There was a farmer uh, with the, like the literal, the big hat, you know, and, and, uh, and he, was, he was climbing out of his, his uh, flatbed pickup and he was actually picking up the, the, the squared off hay bales and he was tossing them in the, the flatbed. You don't see that often anymore. You know, that was kind of cool. Um, but farming, farming on the U.S., like in the United States, has become so, so grand in scope and in scale and so complex and it's, it's almost all done with big machines, but it still takes a lot of work to keep up with it. However, to understand Paul's illustration, it's better to picture the kind of farming that you might have seen um, a couple hundred years ago in the United States in the north. Um, or I thought about that as I was saying this out loud. It was very different to the south. Forgive that, but to, uh, you know, that, that's a whole other thing. But it, the way people would get up early in the morning and they would go out and they would spend time right off the bat Milking the cows, getting the eggs from the chickens. You know, they'd have to feed the animals. We're talking way before the sun even comes up. They'd call it working from what? You remember? I was thinking, can't see to can't see, right? So people would, they, you would work, would start when it's dark, and you would end when it's dark. And if you go to developing nations, it's kind of the same thing for a lot of them. 
you know? It's back-aching physical work during plowing and planting and harvest season, but that's not all there is to do, right? I remember asking Danny a while back, because he's old. He, uh, I'm sorry, because he used to farm. Um, I, would, I said, what did y'all do when you weren't harvesting? And he said, oh, we were always hoeing weeds. It's like it's, there's always, there's constant upkeep. You don't really catch a, a real break until winter, and then you're just trying to keep all your animals alive, right, and your family. You know, there's, there's always threshing and storing to be done in late fall, and, and in spring, you got, I mean, there's, there's always stuff to do. A farmer's life means working extremely hard, okay? It's hard work. And Paul's words to Timothy reflect this, even though he's talking to a fellow evangelist. And I, I'll tell you, that, that speaks to me as a pastor. Okay, like as I read this, guys, we are supposed to have a very consistent nature to our work. Believe it or not, I don't only work 45 minutes a week, though I keep getting told that by so many different people. <laughs> it's, it's not the case. Okay? There's consistent work that goes into, into pastoring. There's consistent work that goes into what you guys do. But there's still, there's so much more that could be done, more visitation, more prayer, more study, and it's good to be reminded that we're to work hard. We are all called to work hard for the kingdom of God. All of us, every one of us. Albeit in different ways and in different seasons. Some seasons you have more time. Some seasons you have less. And I think, I truly believe there is a season coming when there's going to be a lot more struggle and suffering in this nation. And it may put us in a position, friends, that the fields are white for the harvest. There's a reason that that Jesus instructed the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? That he might send workers because the fields are ready. Each of us can pray this prayer. Each one of us can pray this. And we may also be, we may be an answer to this prayer as well if we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and if we're loving people in his name. But we must remember, as a farmer does, that the harvest does not come immediately after plowing and watering, planting. It typically takes a little time, doesn't it? It takes a little, uh, it, take, it takes more watering. It ta- the, the seed has to germinate and grow. We must, friends, trust God to produce the results from our work instead of trying to make it happen ourselves. If you are in this room and you are the Holy Spirit, raise your hand. Ha! Not if you have the Holy Spirit. If you are the Holy Spirit. Pretty sure nobody in this room can raise their hand except the Holy Spirit who we can't see. And he may not be listening to me right now when I tell him to raise his hand. So let's move on from there. But the point is, the watering that happens happens by Christians through the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that we can manufacture. I think there's a lot of of, of congregations that try to gin up or manufacture something. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I hope that we never do that. It's God's work in you that sanctifies you. It's not something that your pastor can create. 
It's not something that you can create for yourself. That's why we need to be in prayer. We need to be asking the Holy Spirit to go to work within us. We should not attempt to take upon ourselves a responsibility for another person's growth, or even our own growth necessarily, other than to faithfully you know, set an example, to continue to do what we know the Word tells us to do. And God grows us as we go. We talked about this a while back. It's interesting and amazing and wonderful how all it takes is for the proper uh, environment. And growth just happens. It happens like that in nature. It happens like that in the supernatural. God produces the right, but, and, and if that seed begins to sprout, it can grow. We also got to remember we're in, a, we're in a system where there are thorns and thistles. I think a lot of us have to deal with that. I need to get back to where I'm at here. The Holy Spirit produces the growth in God's timing. And this is hard for us because we come from a society of absolute instant gratification. You know, I remember reading a quote a while back in a Reader's Digest where a guy said, if somebody missed a, a stagecoach, they used to wait two weeks patiently for the next stagecoach to come along. We get mad if we miss our spot in a revolving door. <laughs> I think it's true. We are so impatient now because we're used to getting things right when we want it. And since we're part of a society that's built on instant gratification, it's hard for us to accept that that is not how things work in nature and it's not how they work in the kingdom of God. It takes time for growth to occur. And this, this is typically the case for faith to take root. But it's always the case when it comes to maturity, when it comes to, to the bearing of, of, of mature fruit. And what we must do, friends, like a farmer, is constantly be focused on the end goal, which is that growth, which is that maturity, which is those fruit. We should deeply desire to see fruit of the Spirit in our own lives and the lives of one another. And if we work hard at this and we trust God to produce it, we're very likely to see it happen. But imagine, though, imagine if farmers didn't understand the cycle of seasons, and so they expected instant results. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would be and how it would change the way that they did everything, they'd, they'd never have enough follow-through to do anything. They'd be all, why am I sacrificing some of my seed grain to put in the ground when I should be eating it, right? Forgetting that that's where the new plants come from. Or, or maybe, why am I dumping water on a patch of upturned dirt? Well, because that valuable water has to grow your food. Or, or why am I bothering to hoe these weeds when my grain hasn't even come to head yet? Because if you don't hoe the weeds, they're going to choke out the grain. They can stick. Farmers can stick with all this hard work because they know what's coming. They're focused on the end goal. And that's something that we as Christians must not forget. Because not only the growth benefits that God brings us in this life, those are pretty great, but, but the future the eternal kingdom of Christ that we get to spend the rest of forever in. Stay focused on the end goal. We work hard because we know there's reward in store, and that reward varies according to what we do with what God gives us. Because, like Paul says, it is the hardworking farmer who receives the first 
share of the crops. There's another verse that shows up in 1 Corinthians 9. I'm not going to tell you to go there, but, but it's one of the two places that Paul quotes the same verse in Deuteronomy. It sounds kind of odd, but it makes sense. He says, don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. And the point is that people, that's, that's not just people in ministry. It's, it's in every legitimate vocation. It's, it's, it's in being a spouse. It's in being a friend. It's in being a parent. We should all get to benefit from our labors. We should all get to see fruit from our hard work. Just as employees uh, that do their job well, you know, do what it requires, they, they can expect a paycheck from that place. We ought to be able to appreciate some of the fruit of our work. You know, parents who raise their children well should, should count on help later in life from those same children. It doesn't always work that way, but we should expect it. Being a good friend usually attracts good friends. It doesn't always work that way, but we should expect it. This is part of the reciprocal nature of giving and receiving, but it's, it's deeper than that on a spiritual level. Did you, know, did you know there are more than 20 times in Scripture where it's stated that people are going to be punished or rewarded according to their deeds? We know, we know, praise God, we know that our salvation is dependent on the grace and mercy of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, whom we receive by faith. That is where our justification comes from. We receive justification by faith that is credited to us as righteousness. But whatever reward we have in heaven directly correlates with how we respond to God's blessing in this life. And likewise, the, the, the harder that we work at spiritually sowing seed in ourselves and in one another and in cultivating what's been planted, the more likely we are to bear an increase. And that's as individuals and as the corporate body, this body and the body at large, the church with a capital C. Of course, we better not forget, this, this is a cooperative effort with God because while he works through our work, we must never, ever lose sight of this fact. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing. Jesus was very clear about that in John 15. He chooses to, to bring his mighty work of salvation to the world through the, the words and the deeds of sinners who are made saints. And that's us. We're sinners made saints. And he chooses to work with us. He chooses to use us to save people. Isn't that cool? I think it's neat. But it's not going to happen from the fence. It happens on the field. It happens on, on the battlefield. It happens on the playing field. It happens in the harvest field. This is how God uses us. So let's get going. Let's go. Let's go into the battle. Let's go into the game. Let, let, let's, let's go into the harvest. God is calling us to leave everything on the field. Jesus did. Aren't you glad? Well, then let's follow him. That's our invitation today, just to follow Jesus. If there are steps that you need to take that you've never taken, if you've not 
professed your faith publicly and been baptized by immersion, I, I challenge you, I invite you to do that today because the Bible is very clear that this is a requirement that God gives to us. And if you've made those steps in your life but you are realizing that you're, you're not really walking faithfully with God and you, you need prayer, you want to, to tell somebody that you want to rededicate your life or you, you need people to just lay hands on you and pray, we'll do that for you this morning. Or if you just recognize that you really want to be a part of a, a body of believers that love the Lord and that are trying to walk according to his word very imperfectly but trying, we're here for that too. You can join this, this body, this local body of believers. But please don't pass on the opportunity that the Holy Spirit gives you today.